you'll uh, take your Bible and open to the Gospel of Luke, we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke. If you come to this church for a while, you'll find that Sunday after Sunday, we go back to a book of the Bible and uh, just sort of take it apart uh, verse by verse, and that's because God's Word is so deep, and it's really a joy to study it, and a privilege to do that, but one of the, I guess, uh, disadvantages, or I don't know if it's really a disadvantage, but one thing that I miss is that when you study one book like Luke for so long, there's also a lot of the rest of the Bible to study that you're not able to do just on a Sunday morning. And so uh, one of the things uh, that we want to do this next year is have an extra Bible study. There's just so much more in the Bible to talk about. And so we're going to have a Bible study beginning on Wednesday nights. We, for the last couple of years, have had a study on Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m. And that was so fun for me, but a little bit early for a lot of us. And so we're going to move that to Wednesday nights and almost hit reboot. And it's going to be a little bit like a Bible study slash class. And so we're going to do a biblical theology of the Old and New Testament over the next couple of years. It probably will take us a couple of years. Uh, but we're going to begin uh, in the Old Testament starting on Wednesday nights in the new year. So I'm giving you a month's notice. You can begin thinking about your calendars. I, I'm hoping to start maybe at 7 or 7.30, go about an hour, hour and a half. Uh, if you have an opinion between 7 and 7.30, just let me, let me know. I'm, I'm, here, I'm up for either one. But uh, 7 or 7.30, we'll get, give you more details on that in the days to come. But this morning, we're in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 35, but this is kind of a longer section, obviously, and so we're going to be looking at it in parts over the next few weeks, and today we're going to begin with verses 18 through 23. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23, and talk about how Jesus responds to a believer's doubts. So the subject is doubt, how Jesus responds to doubt, and specifically a believer's doubts. So this is not a cynical doubt, really, or shaking your fist at God doubt. We're going to be talking about how Jesus responds to a believer's doubts, which I think is important for us to talk about. It's so relevant because there is some confusion about doubt, honestly, even just saying that. A believer's doubts. Can a believer doubt? Some people think of doubt and faith as opposites, and so there can be problems in the way we think about doubt as Christians. And part of the reason for that is because we live in a world right now that values doubt. There's a confusing way that our world thinks about doubt. Doubt is like the new faith, and so there is a lot of pressure to doubt. But not everything, actually. This is where people can be a little hypocritical because the reality is for supposedly being so skeptical, there is a lot of stuff that you are not supposed to be skeptical about. It's like you're only supposed to doubt what they tell you to doubt and believe what they tell you to believe. So, you know, for example, are you supposed to doubt yourself? No, no way. You are supposed to be sure about yourself. If I say believe in yourself, how many people are going to think that's a radical statement? Nobody. And your opinions as well. You're taught to be certain about your opinions and about your own ability to reason. You ask uh, somebody, how do you know that? And they say, because I looked at the evidence and I figured it out. And nobody questions your ability to know things that way even though that way of knowing is definitely based on a belief system. But you don't ask questions about that. And your feelings, really. I ask, how do you know that's true? And you say, because I feel like it's true. And if what you're saying goes along with what most everyone else is saying, then I'm not even allowed to question that, right? It must be true if you feel like it's true. So you are supposed to be certain about a lot of things, actually, but you are not supposed to be certain about what God says. For most people, 
that's different. That is crossing a line. It's not good in our world right now to be confident about what the Bible says God is doing through Jesus, which is a problem because that's kind of Luke's whole goal for us. The purpose of Luke, this book that we've been studying, is to get us sure about what God's doing through Jesus. You remember Luke chapter 1, verse 4. It seemed good to me to write an orderly account. Why? That you might have certainty. And so we've been looking at these stories in Luke for, uh, for weeks now, months, years even. This is two years in Luke, so that we might have certainty. Luke wants us to be certain. Luke values certainty. God values certainty. Not about everything, of course, but about what he says, about the gospel, about Jesus. This is a good thing when it comes to the Bible, certainty. It honors God to fully believe what he says. It does us good. We steal our own joy when we don't fully believe what God says. It does the world good. The world needs the church to be certain about the gospel. And yet, with all this stress on being certain, especially as we're living in this culture that's really kind of confusing in what it says about doubt and certainty, I think it's important we think carefully. Because while on the one hand, we don't want to just mindlessly give in to how everyone is telling us to think about doubt, and about certainty. We want to be people of conviction. This is important. We want to be certain about what we can be certain about. On the other hand, we, we don't want to say more than the Bible does either and, and create this kind of fairy tale idea of church where we act as if believers don't ever doubt or we are so shocked when a believer doubts. Because doubt can be a real and genuine problem for us, even as believers in Jesus. And so we're going to look at this story in Luke chapter 7, and I'm going to say a number of things about doubt and about the believer and about Jesus. But I guess the first thing I want you to hear right at the beginning, if you're struggling with doubts, is that you are not the first. Because we see verse 18 and 19, John doubts. Luke says, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, which connects this story with the last one, the last two, all these things about Jesus healing the centurion servant and raising the widow's son. Luke tells us that had become big news. Verse 17, this report about Jesus spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country, which you can imagine it would. Raising someone from the dead would do that. People would tend to talk about that. And so at some point, John the Baptist's disciples heard that and went to John and told him about it. And then Luke tells us, verse 19, that John had questions. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Which is actually a surprising thing for John to say, uh, for a, a number of reasons. But first of all, it's surprising because we're talking about John the Baptist. This isn't any ordinary John. This is John the Baptist. And so we're talking about someone who was a follower of Jesus. In fact, we're talking about someone who wasn't just a follower of Jesus. He was literally one of the greatest followers of Jesus who ever lived. Not just according to me, but according to Jesus. Jesus says, if you take all the men who ever lived pre-Jesus, he's the greatest of them all. And so he was important in how God was accomplishing salvation through Jesus. I mean, he had a, a big part to play, so big that an angel showed up to announce that he was going to be born. And Old Testament scripture was written specifically about him. God filled him with the Holy Spirit from the womb. He was the one chosen to baptize Jesus. Even in Luke, when Luke wants to show us the first big proof that Jesus is the Messiah, he starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. He was a follower of Jesus. He was great. He was part of God's plan, and he was committed. He made sacrifices. I mean, this is a man who went out into the wilderness for the whole purpose of getting people ready for Jesus, and he knew what he was doing as well, and he was doing it for the right reasons. He was sincere, and, and, and one way we know that is because when people come to John the Baptist, 
and try to create conflict between him and Jesus by saying, you know, uh, Jesus is starting to get more popular than you are. John's not upset at all, like a lot of people would be. Instead, he basically says, that's great. That's the whole point. That's why I'm here. I'm supposed to decrease, and he is supposed to increase. And so there is no question about John's relationship with Jesus, but that doesn't mean that John doesn't have questions. John has questions. This text is John the Baptist with a question. Are you the one who is to come? which is clearly an important question, pretty fundamental. And Luke wants us to see it because Luke repeats it. And Luke's not really a repeater. If you look at verses 19 and 20, he says, John called two of his disciples to him and sent them to the Lord saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? which is Luke's way of making sure we don't miss the question. And it's almost the same exact language John himself was using back in Luke chapter 3. You remember? He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. And he was talking there about the Messiah. That's the one who's coming. And so he's, he's not doubting here, John, whether God's going to accomplish his plan. He's not asking now, is the mighty one coming? But instead, he's asking Jesus, are you actually that mighty one? Which is a little surprising because that's exactly who John had been spending the last several years saying Jesus was. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is John. And now John's like, wait a second. Are you really him? the one I've been preaching about, the, the savior, the rescuer, the deliverer, the promised king. That's surprising. But what's maybe even more amazing, really, than just the fact that John doubted is the fact that the Bible would tell us he did. In fact, it's so amazing that some people think John wasn't wondering here because they, uh, they can't believe that the Bible would admit that. And so they say it must have been one of John's disciples. They must have been the ones with the questions, and so he must have just been sending them to Jesus so they could be assured, like he was worried about them. But I don't think so, because Jesus told them to go back to John, didn't he? And if John wasn't wondering, why did they have to go back and tell him what Jesus says? And then Jesus ends by saying, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble or isn't offended by me. And that's like a proverb, but it's actually singular. Blessed is the one. And it's part of what Jesus wanted them to tell John, which indicates that John was on the verge of stumbling. And so the most natural, normal reading of this text would be that John the Baptist was a real human with real questions. And you know what? The Bible's not embarrassed to tell us. That there was a point when the one who was supposed to announce Jesus as the Messiah looked at Jesus and wondered, am I getting this right? Is he really who I thought he was? And I guess what's especially striking to me and important to think about as we think about living out this Christian life is the fact that it is Luke, the one who is writing this whole book, that you might be certain who wants you to know that John asked that. I mean, he's not hiding that. He's actually bringing it to our attention, and I'm glad that he does because as we think about what it means to be a certain Christian, and as we think about doubt even, remembering that can help us avoid a kind of overreaction because sometimes I've found when you doubt, when doubt enters your mind, it's tempting to think that those doubts maybe mean, okay, maybe now I don't believe. And to just sort of freak out, like I guess it's over. But it's not over. Doubt is different than active unbelief. And it's not that unusual either. To think that you would go through life without ever doubting is not really realistic. It's a struggle that comes with actually just being a human even. At some point, almost everyone doubts, even non-Christians actually. Because even if you aren't a believer in Jesus, you are a believer in something. The opposite of faith in Jesus is not really unbelief. 
as much as it is faith in something else. And if you are believing anything, at some point, that belief is going to come under pressure, and you're going to start wondering, is what I'm believing what I should be believing? To ask that, to internally face opposition between two beliefs and evaluate which is the right belief to say, I don't understand, am I right, is this the right belief, is this belief true, doesn't in and of itself mean that you are so unusual or that you're somehow departing the faith. In fact, I remember a season in my life where uh, for about two years I was doubting Jesus, and these were big doubts. Like, is there a God? How can he judge sinners? Uh, hell, how is there a hell? And I had been a Christian for a long time at that point, and I was a Christian then. I don't have any question about that now, and it was terrible, and I hated it, and it was dangerous. It was definitely a dangerous time in my life. I needed God's help to deal, to deal with that, but don't think just because there are times where you struggle with doubting, that means you have gone over the edge for sure. Because we see here in this book, which was written to give you certainty, Luke tells us there was even a time when John, who was a follower of Jesus and a great man and an important part of God's salvation plan and a sincere believer and the one chosen by God to announce the Messiah, doubted. John doubted. That's first. But second, what's actually probably even more important to notice in terms of what Luke is doing is when Luke tells us that John asked this question. Why did John doubt? What, what was the occasion for his doubting? It's not maybe what you would think it would be. Verse 18 again, or actually to get the context, verse 16 to begin. Luke says, fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his his people, which is a significant statement. God has visited his people because that's almost exactly what John the Baptist's father had said God was doing when Jesus was born. And so as Jesus raises this man from the dead and heals the centurion's servant, Luke tells us that the people responded by agreeing with John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, and confirming basically, that what Zacharias said was going to happen is what's happening. God has visited his people. It's very specific language. And Luke says that this report about Jesus spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. And somehow the disciples of John heard about it and especially about what people were saying it meant and went back and told John. And it's that report that caused him to wonder. Specifically, it seems like the way Jesus reached out to a Gentile and his compassion for a widow was confusing to John, which is maybe a little confusing to you. You're like, I understand having questions, but I'm not sure I understand these questions. This is what's fun about reading the Bible, because you come to the Bible with your questions, and sometimes what the Bible says to you is that your questions aren't even really the hard ones or the most important ones. It's like maybe if you've ever had an advanced class, you know, and you don't, you're not really feeling up to this class, and neither are all the rest of the students. And so you're in this advanced class, and they're asking questions, but the questions they're asking are sort of superficial. And so there are questions that need to be asked, but they need someone to teach them. The students need someone to teach them not just the answers, but even the right questions to ask the professor. And to understand the question here that needs to be answered about Jesus, first you have to understand why reports about resurrections and things like that would cause John to doubt, when it would seem to us like it should do the opposite. John, you won't believe it. Jesus just raised a boy from the dead uh, at the same place Elijah did. And that was right after Jesus heals the centurion's servant the way Elisha healed Naaman, but better. And... Now, you know what? People are saying the same things about Jesus that your father did before he was born. And John's like, hmm, that's, that's curious. Maybe you should go and ask him, are you really the one? 
you, you understand that the, the question, why, why, why does that cause John to wonder? And you could start to get an answer, maybe, by thinking about John's personal circumstances. In other words, what's happening in his life at this point? Does anybody know where John is at this moment? Yeah, Luke doesn't tell us here, but he gives a hint in the fact that this report was spreading about Jesus all over the place, and yet clearly John didn't hear about it until his disciples reported all these things to him. And so where would a person be who wouldn't hear these reports unless someone brought the reports to them in jail, right? John's in jail or, or prison. And Matthew tells us that, actually, when he records the same story. Matthew 11:1 1 says, Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, and Luke probably doesn't feel the need to say that because he's already told us about Herod locking John up back in chapter 3. And Now, prison wouldn't be great for any of us, and, and we probably wouldn't like it, and we would have our doubts, why am I in prison? But I think it would have been difficult for John for a different reason than for most of us. Since he lived much of his life out in the wilderness, I don't think the problem would have been the prison life. He had been eating all those bugs, you know, so I don't think he's complaining about the prison food. As much as he would have questions because of what him being in prison represented. That's, that's the issue. Because John wasn't just going out and preaching about the Messiah. John had expectations about what the Messiah would do, and he had been learning about what the Messiah would do really from childhood. If you think back on John's life for a minute, you'll see that pretty much from birth, John had been raised with certain expectations. I mean, how many times do you think his father told him the story about the angel showing up and announcing his birth? John, I was at the temple, and an angel came. He started talking to me about you and the book of Malachi. John, God is on the move here now. Or how often do you think his mother mentioned to him how he responded when Mary came to visit? John, you won't believe you leaped in my belly with joy because you knew this was the Lord, the, the one who is coming to rule over Israel forever. And really, that's why they were so excited about the Messiah, because of what they thought was going to happen when he came. And so it wasn't like, we want the Messiah to come, we want the Messiah to come. Oh, yeah, what's the Messiah going to do when he comes? Oh, we don't know, but I, something good, we hope. No, they had things they thought were going to happen. In fact, John's father was a part-time preacher. And back in Luke chapter 1, he preaches the best sermon he ever preached because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And when he talks about Jesus, you know what he says? He says, he is the one God was going to use to save his people from their enemies. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, that we should be saved from our enemies, from the end of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And then he tells John, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sin because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And so you know, I'm sure, that Zechariah had been telling John these things his whole life. It, it looks bad, John, but the Messiah's coming. Don't worry. Every time they had family devotions, what do you want to read, Dad? Let's read those Old Testament promises again about deliverance from our enemies, about God's people becoming holy and righteous, and about God visiting us. You know, if John was ever tempted to fall asleep, like devotions are going long, his father would have shaken him and said, John, you are part of this. <laughs> You're going to preach. This actually, this passage is about you, and, and you're going to preach, and the Messiah's going to come, and we're going to be delivered. And so that's why John even went out there in the wilderness in the first place and started getting people ready for the Messiah, and it wasn't easy either. The way he lived his life, it was intense, but it was worth it because he knew the Messiah was going to come and because he knew what would happen when he did, and you find that he's constantly talking about it. John, how, how the Messiah was going to change everything, and it was going to be a revolution that would impact every level of society. 
This is John's message. The mighty one is coming. And so there was going to be judgment for God's enemies and salvation for God's people. And he was constantly warning people, you've got to get ready. You've got to make a decision. You remember Luke chapter 3, the stuff he was saying before he baptized Jesus. He said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And talking to the Pharisees, he said, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then later people asked him, John, are you the Messiah? And John says, no, I can't be because I just baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then they might ask, what, what kind of fire are you talking about, John? This kind of fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so John had expectations. He wasn't just preaching. He had certain expectations of what the Messiah would do when the Messiah came. And yet even though John had gone out there and he had pretty much done everything he could to prepare the way for the Messiah, it wasn't long after he baptized Jesus that Herod, who was the ruler of Galilee, decided to throw John in prison. Not because John had done anything wrong, but instead because John was being faithful. And Herod was this wicked man who was sleeping with his brother's wife. And John stood up and exposed that. And Herod didn't like that and threw him into a prison, which was more like a dungeon. And he had been sitting there for something like nine months, John. Maybe up to a year. Which I'm guessing is not exactly how he thought all this was going to go down. When he first went out there into the wilderness. That doesn't seem like the massive changes to society that he had been prophesying, which I think is partly why he's asking this question as he's hearing reports about what Jesus is doing and people are telling him he's not seeing everything he was expecting. And so instead of these reports bringing him encouragement, they're causing him to wonder. Perhaps first and maybe primarily because he think, he's thinking, you know, where's the judgment of God's enemies? Because all this compassion is good, but it's for a Roman centurion and for a widow. And so when exactly is Jesus going to start doing the real work, you know, of abolishing evil rulers like Herod and putting down Roman tyranny and giving Israel her political independence? Where is the salvation from her enemies that he was expecting? That's first. And then second, maybe honestly, John was also wondering, if Jesus had this kind of power, why wasn't he rescuing him? Because that's a, a real question, too. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but you remember what people were saying in Luke 7, verse 17? Look at it again. They were saying, God has visited his people, which again is close to what John's father said in Luke 1. He says, the sunrise shall visit us from on high, and that's probably a word picture for the Messiah but why does that cause John to question that specific report? It's maybe because after Zechariah says the Messiah visits, he adds a purpose. Listen to it. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Which is exactly where John is sitting at this point. You see, John is sitting there in the dark waiting to be executed and hearing about God visiting his people and thinking, if that's true, why isn't Jesus doing everything I thought he would do? You know, it's funny, when we read the Bible, we sometimes think it would be so much easier for the people in Jesus' day to be certain. But think about John, because there's a lot that he's hoping for that's even based on God's word that he's not seen at that moment. The Messiah has supposedly come, but he's not seen Jesus establish the kingdom of God on earth. He's not seen Jesus defeat the Romans. He's not seen all the enemies of Israel be defeated. He's not seen Jesus set himself on the throne of David. In fact, the only thing he's seen is the bars on the prison cell where he's sitting, which doesn't seem to fit with the way he understands God's promises were supposed to work out. And though you're not sitting in prison right now, I'm sure some of you have felt that. You're not the first, and John's not the last to 
look at what's happening in the world and wonder because it doesn't seem to match up with what you think God said or the way you think God's supposed to act. I know it's easy to read these stories in the Bible about Jesus healing the centurion servant and raising the widow's son from the dead and be like, yeah, that's, that's great. But you know, of course they were sure about what Jesus was doing because they were there. I mean, I wouldn't have a problem being sure about Jesus if my son was raised from the dead and my servant was instantaneously healed, but he's not. I pray and I'm not being delivered instead. And you know what? This is what I want you to hear. Neither was John. And I think maybe that's why Luke puts this story here, because he wants us to be certain, but he doesn't want us to get the wrong idea and think that everybody who put their trust in Christ suddenly had everything easy, because they didn't. Not now and not back then either. And because of that, some of them seriously struggled, like John, and maybe, again, like some of you. I don't know if you're doubting right now, but I do know life is hard, and it's easy to get discouraged. You become a Christian, and you're excited about what you hear, and you believe, and yet sometimes as you keep going on in this Christian life, it doesn't seem to work out the way you would think, and you don't change, and things don't seem to change all that much or as quickly as you would like, and sometimes, actually, there are things in your life that only get more difficult because you're following Jesus, and people let you down, and so maybe now you're coming to church week after week, and I'm telling you to trust in Jesus. You can trust Jesus. You need to trust Jesus, and you're like, that's easy for you to say, or that's easy for someone to say when they're being delivered, but I'm not. I'm just sitting here in the darkness, waiting to die. You're believing, but you've got doubts. And you know, I'm not here to say today, that's great. I'm so glad that you're doubting. It's good for you to be doubting like that. Because I want you to be sure, and I want you to be certain. I think that's a, a better place to be spiritually. And I think you can be sure, and you can be certain when life is confusing. That's even why Luke wrote this gospel. You want certainty. It's not a good place to be to go around doubting, but it's real (laughs) sometimes. That's the thing. As people with limited knowledge and imperfect reason living in a complex world, you need to know it's not that unusual to struggle with doubt. You're not the first. John's not the last. The Bible is a realistic book. It doesn't ever give us a picture of believing as meaning that you absolutely never have any questions. Having to stick to a belief against internal opposition is a pretty normal part of life for almost anyone. But where doubts really start to become dangerous, and this is where you have to watch out, is when you add a splash of pride to them. Doubt plus pride can get you in serious trouble. Because what happens then is that you're tempted to start acting as if you were the judge of God. Since I don't understand, I can't understand. Or it can't be understood. That's the way we act. And we can get really naive too. And sometimes we don't realize a spiritual war is going on. And so we doubt all these beliefs about God and about the Bible, but we don't doubt all these other beliefs that we came up with on our own or that we're replacing our belief in the Bible with. And so we just sit there and stew over our questions and doubts about God and basically feel like we have the right to question and quarrel with him. But not John. John doubts, that's first. He doubts when circumstances, his circumstances don't seem to match with God's promises. That's why he doubts. But what does John do with his doubts? That's third. Luke says he sends his disciples to Jesus. This is where we can start learning a lesson from John because he does exactly what you should do when you struggle with doubts as well. This is how a believer doubts, verses 18 and 19. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord. In other words, he doesn't just sit there and argue with himself. In fact, really, in sending these disciples to Jesus with this question, John has basically conquered because it wouldn't make much sense to send them to Jesus asking this question if John didn't trust what Jesus said. 
So instead of his doubts leading him away from Jesus, his doubts led him to Jesus. And that's how I want to challenge you as well, because if you're a little bit proud, your doubts can start to feel so powerful, because you're like, this is just the way it is. And you feel like you should understand everything easily because you're a smart guy, you know, you, you took AP classes or something. And if you don't understand everything easily, then the problem's not with you, the problem has got to be with God. And so you start throwing everything out. Instead of humbly asking God, you're angrily quarreling with God. When if you had some humility, you would doubt your doubts a little bit, if you know what I mean. Because doubts are really funny things. Uh, you would think that doubt would be doubtful. But doubt is not doubtful. Doubt usually acts like it's all certain, at least when it's in your head. And so doubt makes a lot of big claims. And one of the biggest claims that doubt makes is that you know better than God, which of course is crazy pride, when really what your doubts should do is what John's doubts caused him to do, and that is go to Jesus and say, you know what, I must be missing something here. I must not have all the information I need. Can you help me understand better what's actually happening? Whenever you doubt one belief, and this is something that's been so helpful for me to understand, whenever you doubt one belief, you're favoring another belief at the same time. You're, you're trading beliefs, really, most of the time. And the problem is you don't always notice the belief in the background usually because it's just the default way that everybody else is thinking. In fact, there's a sense, really, in which the way you deal with your doubts is an expression of what you fundamentally believe. It's not that believers don't ever doubt. That's not what sets them apart from unbelievers. It's more in how they doubt. Because if I believe in myself, when I doubt, I'll sit there and get angry with God and just stay there. Nope, God, this is just the way it is. You can't tell me anything I don't know. But if my faith is in God, a God who is bigger than me, a God who's in a category all by himself, who exists outside of creation, who is transcendent, then my doubts are going to take me by the hand and lead me to him and cause me to sit at his feet and say, help me, God, creator of the universe. I know you know better than me. And so as we talk about being certain and sure, I want you to understand that we're not talking about never having any questions, at least not in this world, the way things are right now. The question is not really whether or not you'll ever struggle with doubt. The real question is, where will your doubts take you? Do your doubts lead you to Jesus or away from him? John had doubts. What did he do? He went to Jesus. And I'm not sure what answer John was expecting. If I were John, I probably would be thinking, I hope Jesus says, just wait and I'll come get you out of prison. But instead of immediate deliverance or even really just a simple yes or no, look at the way Jesus responds. This is fourth. Look at how Jesus responds to John's doubts in verse 20. Luke says, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And then John, verse 21, or Jesus responded, verse 21, with a stunning display of miraculous power. In that hour, and the way Luke puts that indicates this wasn't coincidence, like they came to Jesus as he was healing. No, they come to Jesus, they ask the question, and then Luke says, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And so this is part of his answer. Look at me. Look at me. Jesus almost always had a, a crowd with him, even before he raised the boy from the dead, and I'm sure the crowd only grew after. And so it wasn't like Jesus had to go out looking for people to heal or something. They were right there with him. And so when John's disciples come, it's like the first thing Jesus does is just get up and walk out into the crowd and then give them a somewhat personal display of his miraculous power and then tell them to go back to John and explains exactly what they were supposed to tell him in verse 22. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the good news preached to them. Which at first maybe seems like a little bit of a confusing answer because it's not a straight yes or no exactly. And if you look at it, I don't actually think Jesus is giving John a whole lot of new information though he might be focusing his attention more specifically on giving the blind sight and preaching good news to the poor. But, poor. but just in general, John 
knew most of this. And so I think it's interesting, as Jesus deals with John's doubt, that he doesn't give John a whole lot of new answers. Because that's often what we want God to do. But Jesus doesn't. He doesn't say, okay, let me explain why this is happening to you right now, John. Or even, you know, this is why I'm not doing the judging the way you thought I would. Instead, he basically says, look at me and look at your Bible. Because these things that Jesus does and says here are almost all quotes about what the Messiah would do from the book of Isaiah. They're pretty recognizable. Like I could find passages and show you these. And that's one of the best ways to deal with doubts, really. Look at what you see Jesus doing in the lives of people and look at your Bible humbly. And for John, it was going to take a little bit of humility because John knew his Old Testament. And that's why John was asking the questions he was because he assumed that certain things were supposed to happen when the Messiah came. And yet, quoting Isaiah here, it's like Jesus is reminding John that if you look closely, you'll see the Messiah's work even in the Old Testament is a, a little complex. Because in Isaiah, there are these chapters uh, that are prophecies about the Messiah. And yet when you look at what they say, you should expect when the Messiah comes, sometimes they'll talk about him as a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 being the classic example where he dies in the place of the people. And other times they talk about how he's going to establish God's rule the way John was hoping. And Jesus here you know, is actually doing things and then explaining what he's doing with quotes about the Messiah from both sections. And so it's like he's saying, John, you have some questions, I know, so look at me. Because what I'm going to do is quickly give you a sample which demonstrates my ability to do absolutely everything God promised he was sending the Messiah to do. Rain, like you're expecting, yes, but also suffer. And while I know it may not be happening exactly the way you expected it to happen in terms of the timing, if you look at all that the scripture says the Messiah will do, and then look at the kinds of things I'm doing, you'll see it's happening. I'm doing it. And to help John identify that, the Two statements that stand out most in Jesus' explanation in verse 21 and 22 are the ones that come at the end. So there's a little more here because in verse 21, it says, Luke, sa uh, Luke says, Jesus healed many people of diseases. And then, uh, you know, he doesn't talk about which diseases. But at the end, he does give one specific way Jesus healed as an illustration when he says, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Which should make you ask, why did he choose that one? Because Jesus hasn't healed a blind man yet in the Gospel of Luke. So this is new, too. And I think it's because the way Isaiah describes Israel's problem most frequently is as being spiritually blind. It's like Isaiah uses physical imagery to describe a spiritual problem. And so if the promises to Israel were going to be fulfilled, the Messiah was going to have to be able to fix that. And this is a picture in reverse almost. If Jesus can heal a physically blind man, that means he can fix Israel's spiritual blindness, which is going to change everything. It means those promises are going to be fulfilled. Jesus can deal with Israel's fundamental problem and ours. And that's actually why he had to suffer. Not because he wasn't going to be the Messiah the Old Testament promised, but so that he could be the Messiah. But then, you know, when he gives the explanation in verse 22, he closes with and preaches good news to the poor, which maybe sounds anticlimactic, right? Uh, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them. Why doesn't he end with the dead are raised up? That seems to be the big one. But that's Jesus' way of emphasizing the last statement. And he may emphasize the gospel being preached to the poor as a way of saying to John, be patient. Because while your expectations about the Messiah are going to be met, it's going to work out for a while differently than you thought. Because this, this is the part of the Messiah's work that I'm focusing on right now. The good news going out to those who need it, to those you wouldn't expect, like the centurion and like this widow. 
which is the beginning of an answer for John, because in verse 24, we see at this point, John's messengers left. They got what they needed to help John with his doubt. And I think Jesus gives us the beginning of an answer for us as we struggle with doubt here as well, because this is not just a story about John and his doubts. It's supposed to be really practical for us. If you, like John, are doubting, first, it's a big deal, but don't overthink it. Just because you're doubting doesn't necessarily mean you've somehow become an unbeliever. It is possible for believers to doubt. Second, the key is what are you doing with your doubts? Because that's what's going to show what is really at the heart of your doubt. Doubts can destroy you if you trust in yourself for the answers, but they can transform you if you're going to God in prayer and humbly asking him for help and taking him at his word. That's a good sign that yours is a believing doubt. And of course, as you do all that, make sure you're really understanding what God says. You think you've come to church for so long, you know everything the Bible says. You don't. You don't, and I don't. And I can't tell you how many people struggle with doubts, how incredibly arrogant they are, because they'll often talk as if they have understand the whole Bible, and then when they talk, you realize they don't, often they don't have much of a clue what they're talking about. <laughs> There's some doubt that just comes from ignorance or popular but unbiblical ideas about Jesus, which could honestly be cleared up pretty quickly if you understand what the Bible actually teaches. And while God may not give you any new answers exactly as you study, make sure that you're studying with your eyes on Jesus. I know this is so helpful for me as I struggle with doubt. Josh, just look at Jesus. Just look at Jesus. And maybe you even need what John needed here, which was some friends who have been around Jesus recently, to come back and report to you about what they've seen him do. It's so good to hear stories about how Jesus is at work. Read the Bible, listen to testimonies, which is basically how Jesus encourages John. That's how Jesus deals with John's doubts. But even as I say all that, I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't do. Because so often this is what we want, but so often it's not what Jesus does. He doesn't deliver John from prison. It's kind of interesting. If you go back to Luke 4, where Jesus is talking about his work, he quotes Isaiah 61 in Luke 4. He says, uh, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, which is what Jesus just told John's disciples he was doing. But notice what he doesn't say to them, which is actually what he says next. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, which is exactly where John's at. He's captive and wanting liberty, I'm sure. And I kind of wonder if John was even waiting for his disciples to say that when they came back. John's like, what did Jesus tell you? And they said, he's healing the blind, and he's preaching the good news to the poor. And then John was like, okay, did he say anything else? <laughs> and they're like, I know, that's where he stopped. And John's like, are you sure, are you sure? And they're like, no, that's all. And John must have been like, wow. Okay, let me wrestle with that. And, now, and we're going to have to wrestle with that right now. Because lots of times we think the answers to our doubts is to have Jesus do everything for us that we want, to conform himself to our plans. But that's not the way Jesus often deals with our doubts. He doesn't always solve our doubts by delivering us from our problems. Instead, most of the time, he leaves us there and calls on us to overcome our doubts by looking at what we know and understand from his word and looking at him and what he's doing and trusting that he knows better than us. Which is where the problem so often is, right? Sometimes we struggle with doubt because of an intellectual problem. Um, but it's not always intellectual. A lot of times it's more emotional. And so while we've got all these reasons, you know, that we might give as to why we struggle with doubts, and sometimes we, we get good, we can try to make them sound smarter than they are. Sometimes what it really comes down to, if we're honest, is that God is not working in our lives the way we thought he would. And our emotions start to take control. And we come to church and we hear the Bible and we get angry. Like you say, trust Jesus, but it's so hard because my marriage is a mess or I'm doing what God wants and I'm stuck or I did this for Jesus, like I did this for Jesus, and it was supposed to work out like this, but it didn't. 
And if you're going to overcome doubt in those moments, you can't just let your emotions take control. There are times where you have to say to doubt, be quiet and respond to your doubt with truth and say, whether I feel like it or not, this is what's real. This is what's real. And one thing that's real, and it's a hard reality, is that Jesus didn't promise to fix this broken world completely right away. A lot of times, serving Jesus right now is going to be sad and difficult. And if you have any questions about that, you can look at John. Because here's the person who came to announce Jesus is king, and yet he's thrown in prison and eventually beheaded. And it's not just John, it's also Jesus, the Messiah. God's son came and completely did God's will and did it perfectly, and that's part of why he was crucified. And so if you're expecting to follow Jesus and have it all make sense all the time and never have any reason for question, and it always works out the way you think it should, you do the right thing, and it's always amazing, then I am not surprised you're doubting. And you're going to do more than doubt because, yeah, Jesus is going to fix things. Things are going to get better. There's going to be a resurrection of the dead, and there's going to be freedom from sickness and sin and all of that. But we're not there yet. It's, it's coming, and I'm sure it's coming because look at the kinds of things Jesus did. But right now, it's not going to be easy. But that's okay, because in the end, it is going to be worth it. Because Jesus made a promise. He said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And so I realized Jesus doesn't look like some of us might have expected he would, especially as he's dying there on the cross. And he, might, he may not be going about saving the way you thought he would or that you think you would if you were him. But whatever you do, don't allow that to cause you to get the wrong idea about Jesus. Because he is the one. He is the only one God sent to rescue us. And he'll do it. He'll do it. If you put your trust in him, you might get beheaded. It's true. But in the end, you'll be blessed, just like John. Let's pray. Your word is a light to our path. In this dark world, Jesus, you speak. Help us to listen. Lord, as a church, help us to be real, not to come and feel like we have to, to, to be fake or lie and say, yeah, I understand everything in the whole world that God's doing perfectly. It makes total sense to me. Help us to be humble and to admit when we have doubts. But Lord, help us to learn from John and from Jesus what to do with our doubts and not get proud, but go to you and submit to your word. We pray this, Jesus, in your name and for your glory. Amen.